to the Wellness as a Service podcast, a podcast tracking the future of data-driven disease prevention, life extension, and wellness optimization consumer products and services. And now over to your host, Lee S. Driver. Hello and welcome. On today's show, we have Jeremy Malaka. Hopefully I pronounced that okay. It will be an ad-lib conversation without any pre-agreed structure or topics. We've agreed only to talk around the focus of Jeremy's company, which is streamlining functional medicine, starting with the data consolidation. Jeremy is a CEO and co-founder of Biocanic, with over 20 years of medical and software-related experience. Prior to Biocanic, he was Vice President of M&A Strategy in ResMed's software-as-a-service business. Across his 10-year career at ResMed, he also held senior leadership roles overseeing global product management across a product portfolio and was a lead person behind the conceptualization and launch of their solutions digital health ecosystem. Prior to joining ResMed, he worked for CardioDynamics as a product manager focusing on EHR integrations. He holds a Bachelor of Engineering in Biomedical Engineering from Northwestern University, in addition to six patents in nonlinear signal processing for medical applications. Hello, Jeremy, as guest number 10. Thanks for having me, Lee. I appreciate it. So it's quite early where you are. Uh, Yep. You feeling good? Yeah. No, feeling great. Okay, I'll jump straight in. So I was, I don't recall the precise details, maybe you do, but I was interviewing Kravis, uh, Kravis, Travis Christofferson, and I happened to mention that to you on LinkedIn, and you said, hey, take a look at my platform. I looked at your website. I think I pronounced it correct, Biocanic? Correct, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I look at the website, and I'm like, hmm, uh, I'm not so sure. It looks more like a template or something. Uh, then you said, hey, do you want to look at the login? I, I logged in. Uh, and then I began noticing actually you're working on something that, that ties into the whole data-driven notion of health. And I think you've got some of the concepts, right? And you're acting as one of the stepping stones to the future. So do you want to introduce Bio, your, your company and what, what it's doing? Yeah. So uh, my company is Biocanic and uh, the origin of the word is really biology mechanic. And the idea is, is that we're building a platform for people to help um, really guide them and understand how to really um, feel what is going on with their individual metabolism from a what you know the term would be multi-omic perspective, um, but then also really track and follow the outcomes based upon the changes that they're making within their lifestyle. Uh, and then ultimately, what we're really trying to do is build a personalized health engine so that the next person who comes in with similar complaints. Um, similar metabolic function or dysregulation. So things like gut dysbiosis, cortisol dysregulation, um, you know, yeast overgrowth or any types of other, what I would call subclinical things that are driving uh, symptomatic expression, helping them find the fastest possible way to resolving those issues based upon what has worked for other people like them before. So you're trying to create some kind of shortcut to diagnostics. Uh, no, not to well, not to diagnostics from the traditional medical um, diagnostico ICD-10 perspective. What we're really focused on is the health and wellness side of the world. So people who are 
seeing their health, personal health decline in ways that would be sit outside of the diagnostic space. So things like I'm noticing that I'm getting afternoon headaches. I get gas and pain and bloating after eating. I, you know, I'm starting to see, you know, hair loss or I'm starting to feel like I have, um, you know, feeling lethargic or rapid weight gain for despite not doing anything different. Um, and so we're, we're really focused on enabling people to better understand the and make sense of all the data that's available to really get a good view of where their personal health is at today and lead them on the path to how they could get better and even optimize their health. It was kind of amusing. As, literally, as you said that, I was swallowing uh, ashwagandha tablet. So what you're meaning is you are not aiming at people who are symptomatic. So you're aiming towards asymptomatic individuals. So if you think about it from, and hopefully the audience, you know, understands the idea of functional health and wellness. No, there, please cover it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I give um, a brief introduction to functional medicine, et cetera, for those who don't know. Yeah. So functional medicine is really looking at the body as an interconnected whole. So rather than taking a medical view of things like, um, you know, the cardiovascular system or the neurological system or internal medicine, functional medicine looks at the body as an interconnected whole. Uh, and so the idea is instead of saying, you know, there's an expression of, say, gas pain bloating after eating and giving a symptomatic suppression prescription for, you know, something like an IBS type of diagnosis, the idea of functional medicine is to understand why. So why are you having gas and pain and bloating after eating? Is it related to gut dysbiosis? Do you have an underlying infection? Is there stress within your life or environmental factors that are driving the issues that prevent you from effectively digesting food that manifests itself in terms of um, this gas and pain and bloating after eating? So really functional medicine and where we sit in what we call functional health is the idea of helping people understand their health from a holistic perspective. So thinking about it from the overall <clears throat> interaction of everything related to uh, how your health and wellness manifests itself in how you live every day. Many years ago, once I access to biomarkers, I just started testing everything and fairly frequently. And for example, you know, I'd go for liver tests like ALT, AST, ALP, GGT, BR, kidney, like uh, BUN, yeah. uh, creatinine. And I had no reason to go for such tests or be it hormones, etc., or thyroid. I just kept going fairly often. And it was so that I could get a data snapshot of my physiology because I reckon that even if I don't know what these biomarkers even mean today, I will in the future. And even if these biomarkers, which I hope they, they are, even if these biomarkers are normal for the next 10 years, that's fine. But what I want to do is be able to notice change over time. Because I figured that having the data, I can't get the data in 10 years. So, for example, if I wanted, how would I know in 10 years if someone says, hey, my testosterone is low? Well, how do I know it wasn't actually low 15 years ago? And, hey, if we're going to supplement it, what was optimal when I was optimal? So there's a huge value in data. 
And so do you want to uh, introduce your platform from the data perspective? Yeah. So um, similar to you, um, you know, I've had my own personal health journey. And really, I've spent most of my career in the regulated medical space um, and going through, uh, you know, different electronic medical records, companies, uh, working in medical device, cardiovascular. Um, but along the way, I ha- was having personal declining health. Um, you know, I was starting to get afternoon headaches, um, you know, wasn't sleeping well, and then was having slow, progressive weight gain over time. During that time, my wife um, was studying to become a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner. Uh, and so I was lucky enough to be her uh, guinea pig and going through the process. And so through that process, I was able to collect a lot of different data points along the way. Um, we did things like gut microbiome testing. We did uh, salivary cortisol testing. Of course, I had my standard um, CBC, CMP lipid panels through my general practice physician. Um, and so what I started creating was a snapshot of my overall health. Um, so I was able to see things that such that um, I was cortisol dominant, meaning that my cortisol pattern was gen- was generally higher than a normal person. Was that high? Do you mind me ask, asking if that was higher in the morning or higher overall or higher? So if you look at the if you look at the general cortisol trend, where you know it's it's low, and then as you wake, it goes to a peak mid morning, and then it falls off over time. All of my values were higher than the reference range, which was interesting, right? But the question really comes up is, is that my normal or is that actually causing problems? And we didn't, we didn't really know because that was the first snapshot. What we then... And did you, do inflama- did you do inflammation also at the same time and match it to cortisol? My C-reactive protein wasn't necessarily off the chart. Yeah, that's what I wondered. Getting, getting snapshots and getting an understanding doesn't, of a time doesn't necessarily tell you what's your normal versus what's your abnormal versus what's driving your declining health in a given scenario. So for me, one of the big indicators through um, what's called a, a dried urine test or a Dutch test um, was the fact that I was actually estrogen dominant. So given my qualitative symptoms in the traditional medical space, especially with all of the emerging um, you know, uh, hormone replacement models um, would have been perceived as low testosterone. The reality was I was actually estrogen dominant with normal testosterone. Um, and so now having, you know, fast forwarded two years and done that progressive um, Dutch test, what, what I see is that my general genetics and metabolic potential is that I am generally an estrogen dominant individual with low methylation. And so for me, I have to be very cognizant of how I'm managing um, both my diet relative to uh, carbohydrate, driving an insulin response, um, but then ultimately looking at how am I supporting my methylation pathways, given the fact that I have, I'm heterozygous for the MTHFR genes, right? Um, And so really, back to your original point is getting the information gives a snapshot in time and then building that visibility of how my metabolism is working over time allowed us to glean the insights of what was really driving my personal declining health, which was hyperinsulinemia. 
Um, and so going through this process, get, you know, old, starting with a, with a, what would be a traditional keto diet and moving to more of a modified paleo low carb diet, I've actually been able to drive down my estrogen dominance, increase my methylation through diet choices, like things like adding choline, creatine, uh, glutathione, um, which has actually resulted in a transformation in both my health. I ended up losing almost 45 pounds and about 15% body fat over the course of two years. And all along the way, it was built upon understanding what the levers were that were important to the phys- to my own physiology that drove the manifestation of what is my health and well-being. What was causing your weight gain precisely? Are you saying it was you're you're saying it was estrogen dominance was driving weight yeah. gain? So, or are you saying it was hyperinsulinemia? So, or are you saying it was low methylation? It was or? all of that. Um, so really what my particular situation was I was doing the right things in terms of not eating processed food. I was gluten-free, avoiding inflammatory foods, you know, doing things, uh, reducing alcohol consumption, you know, sober-tober types of experiences, yet I wasn't getting a response. And that was largely driven because over time I was still consuming a large number of carbohydrates, even the good kind. And so what had happened over a course of, say, you know, four to five years of doing that is I started to become insulin resistant. That insulin resistant. How did you measure insulin resistance? Looking at my HbA1c and then also measuring my fasting blood sugar over time. The challenge was my fasting blood sugar was slightly over 100, which is not in the traditional medical system cause for concern. Yet, as we look at the functional medicine approach and looking at more around functional ranges, it absolutely was. And it was indicative of where my problem actually lied. However, it wasn't really fully uncovered until we recognized that my estrogen numbers weren't changing over time, despite trying other approaches to resolve, resolve the issue. Uh, and then so about two years in, uh, the medical director from Precision Analytical highlighted the, the question around, have you considered hyperinsulinemia or insulin resistance uh, as a means to why the estrogen numbers aren't changing? Uh, and that really sent me down the path of going the low carb approach. And that was what was really transformative for me and my own physiology. Is there a link between estrogen and insulin and glucose? I'm not aware of one. I'm not saying there isn't one. I'm just saying wanting educated if you know. Of yeah. One. So, um, so, so during in hyperinsulinemia, you're obviously, you're maxing out your fat cell storage. So you're having to increase more insulin to store more fat cells uh, which is then driving the estrogen creation through that metabolic pathway. So what was your HbA one? Uh, so it was close. It was, I think it was five point eight. So not quite. This is still quite low. You know, both values are quite low. Well, in general, most of the kind of the the number that people really drive toward today is should be below five. Now, from a diagnostic standpoint, in the traditional medical system. Type 2 diabetes would be HbA1c is over 6.5. Do you know what your triglyceride over HDL ratio was? Uh, at the time, it was over 2. It was over 2. Yeah. Do you know if it was excessively over 2? Uh, it was like a, it was like a two, I believe it was like a 2.3. Um, so I think, again, broad brush strokes, um, my triglycerides were on the order of 120 and my HDL was on the order of 60-ish. 
Did you do any lipid analysis, like high resolution? I think there you've got NMR. Yeah, so I, I didn't do that until my, you know, at the time, which was two to three years ago, the NMR was not really well understood uh, from a from a usage standpoint. Of course, now that has accelerated with the, the discussion related to, you know, the usefulness of LDLC. Um, so I did do an NMR, but only recently. Um, but my HDL triglyceride ratio has actually inverted, so I'm less than one in terms of the ratio. So my HDL is higher. Than okay, so you're one. you're below one. That's fine. Yeah. In terms of MTHFR, I'll link the Dirty Genes book by Ben Lynch, and pe- people who don't know what that is can 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 look there. Could you uh, kindly just give a small introduction to what the Dutch test is? Yeah, so the Dutch test is a um, it's called a dried urine test. And what it's it's done four times, or there's an optional for a fifth one. Once upon waking, once uh, two hours after waking, once uh, in the middle afternoon, and then one one time before bed. And what that does is that gives one a cortisol metabolite snapshot of what your cortisol pattern looks like. So, cortisol is a critical hormone that drives basically your awakening response. So it basically prepares you for the day and starts to get you energized, gets you into a metabolic function where you're creating energy to go about your day and then should be declining over time as your melatonin starts get to starts to get increased from the gut to prepare you for bed. So the Dutch test gives you a snapshot as to how that cortisol is going. That's an important indicator because um, a lot of people who are in cortisol being a stress hormone, um, people who are under considerable stress or have, you know, diet dysregulation um, end up having this a cortisol pattern that doesn't follow that trend. Or, you know, perhaps um, based upon stress at the end of the night ends up with cortisol that's higher um, before they go to bed, which then ends up causing sleep problems for people. Like, for example, fibromyalgia patients suffer a rise in cortisol at night. It's very unfortunate. Right. And so you think about that stress hormone, which is driving the activity right before you're supposed to be resting. It becomes very, very challenging to have a good night's sleep or even fall asleep at all. You know, we've seen um, dysregulated patterns where people are waking up, you know, six, eight, you know, times a night. And did you have a, you just said you had a higher pattern overall. Were you having difficulty with sleep? So I wasn't having a difficulty with sleep because my melatonin was appropriate relative to my cortisol value at the end of the night. So although I was higher than the reference range before bed, um, it wasn't completely out of whack. Um, so were you helping it with sleep hygiene, like blue blocker? Uh, so not at the time. So at the time, you know, this was, you know, three years ago. I'm just surprised you were counteracting the cortisol with melatonin naturally. I mean, in a modern lifestyle. Yeah, no, it in, um, but that was a function of my particular gut health being able to still, you know, compensate for the higher cortisol by compensating by putting out more melatonin from my gut. So a lot of people may not be aware of the link between melatonin and gut health. Do you want to briefly mention? Yeah, so melatonin is obviously the the sleep hormone um, that you know helps you become restful. Um, and it's always produced in the gut. Um, and all of it's produced in the gut. And the reality is that when people have gut dysbiosis, things like leaky gut or underlying gut issues, you know, yeast overgrowth, SIBO, or, you know, H. pylori or some size of pathogen that can be impaired. And so one of the manifestations of that is obviously reduced melatonin output, which then 
makes it much more challenging for somebody to go to sleep. True. And I've always wondered if actually disrupted sleep causes in the reverse direction, uh, gut dysbiosis uh, exacerbates leaky gut. I've always wondered if the backward direction was also causal to to some degree. Right. And I, I think that's exactly the point of the challenge of functional medicine, right? Which which one is the starting point and which one is the reaction, right? Um, and then the fact of now I have poor gut health, which is driving poor sleep, which is driving cortisol dysregulation because I didn't get my accurate sleep. Therefore, my cortisol pattern is now not following how it should be, which then drives my inability to metabolically function appropriately, which then makes my gut health worse because now I haven't slept. I'm tired. I'm stressed, which is now adding additional stress on my gut to continually make it worse and worse over time. Yeah. And then you notice with disrupted sleep, higher insulin, et cetera, which reminds me, did you actually go about checking your insulin? No, I did not. Because I've been looking at various charts with glucose against insulin and there's this whole 20 year diabetic journey and the relationship between the two depends on where you're at. And it's really kind of, it says complicated, but it's also shocking because I, the more I look at it, the more I see it's hard to infer what a glucose mean, what a glucose result means, or an insulin result means, without looking at the pair in tandem, and without looking at them over some time, and knowing what they look like over a twenty-year span of growing insulin resistance, because eventually the the invert. Yeah. Anyway, um, you mentioned glutathione. If you don't mind mentioning what glutathione is, and also, if you said you were supplementing with glutathione. Yeah, so um, so being heterozygous for MTHFR, meaning that I have a reduced capacity for methylation, methylation being the primary detoxification function, left me in more of an uh, inflammatory state. One of the ways that you can increase methylation is by adding support foods or supplements to help with methylations by adding more methyl donors, glutathione being one of them. Now, glutathione um, is available um, through different types of food choices, um, through things like cruciferous vegetables. And for me, it vegetables are not something that I'm a super huge fan of. <laughs> um, so I really um, struggled to really increase that. And so one of the things that I do take now is uh, liposomal glutathione, which is just the easier way uh, of adding glutathione to the system. But again, because of my reduced methylation, I w have now added other things um, like choline through increasing my egg consumption and adding even creatine, which is another methyl donor, to support my detoxification function. And the liposomal glutathione, who are you, which is there a particular brand you're using? Yes, but I can't remember it offhand. Okay, I'm also <laughs> taking a liposomal glutathione. And I have a subject, maybe it's, my, it's totally subjective, but I have this subjective ex experience that when I take liposomal glutathione, I feel better. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things and one of the reasons why um, we built the biocanic platform was to do was to track perceived outcomes, right? Um, certainly, there are you know you want to look at objective markers, but objective markers aren't important if you don't actually feel better, right? So if you start a process, 
and you say, look, I, you know, I feel inflamed or tired or headaches, uh, and I rate it as a 10 out of 10, and you're not objectively tracking that information, you tend to lose sight of what happened in the rearview mirror, right? So if you're, if you're, you know, perception of the, the pain and inflammation was 10 out of 10. Two weeks later, you've been taking glutathione and now it's a six out of 10. You feel great, um, but you're still a six out of 10, right? Um, and that's really why it's important to look at how we're supplementing or changing our behavior, changing our diet and objectively tracking it as well. Um, and that's yeah, you've got biases of the human mind. For example, you remember how you felt more recently than you did some time exactly. ago. Exactly, right? And, you know, you think about it, you know, an objective qualitative measurement is how your clothes fit, right? That's something that people can feel every day, and it be, is generally how people measure their health and well-being. But now, more than ever, people are becoming more aware of the things that you can't necessarily quantify in terms of something that simple, um, exactly. How, how is my sleep quality? Do I feel rested in the morning? How do you think about brain fog? Right. Um, and thinking about what does brain fog mean to me today, making a diet lifestyle supplement or, um, you know, uh, some sort of lifestyle change. How can I objectively look back to tell whether I'm getting better? And you can't really do that from a from a bias perspective without actually documenting it. Did you test for heavy metals? It was just when you said unexpected weight gain. I often think about heavy metals since your body tries to protect itself by wrapping them in, in fat, which is a danger of actually losing weight quickly without using uh, correct protocols and yeah, supplements. No, so uh, we did we did both micronutrient and heavy metal toxicity. Um, what was actually interesting is we actually had black mold in the house. Um, the difference between what happened to myself and my wife is I don't appear to have um, systemic uh, symptoms related to black mold, but my wife ended up developing Hashimoto's because of the mold within the house. Um, she's now worked through the AIP diet and reduced her inflammation to get her thyroid numbers uh, back in line and her TPO antibodies down. Um but yeah, we absolutely looked at heavy metal toxicity. Um, but really for me, it's my metabolic function related to carbohydrates. So you're carbohydrate yeah. intolerant. Have you always been that way or did it develop you know, over time? You know, it's interesting, you know, thinking about the discussion in the industry related to, um, you know, you know, brain health, anxiety, um, and thinking back growing up, and I was definitely a carb addict as a child. And I also remember having quite a bit of emotional ups and downs and anxiety. And I probably, had I known what I know now then, it would have been interesting to see if that would have resolved over time. That this idea where my carbon tolerance was driving my emotional and anxiety issues at the time, because I definitely was heavy on the carbs. Anxiety also reminds me of the whole omega three, omega six index. Did you did you test? No, that? I, so I, we didn't do that at the time. Okay, yeah. I just wonder if you were taking any DHA. Any so I do now. Um, part yeah. Oh, you do now. So I should get to your uh, your company. So how did your company come about? Because obviously you've had a health yeah. issue. You've went about fixing it. It sounds like you began in a spreadsheet, which is yeah. what I'm doing. Uh, more recently, I began using Heads yep. Up Health, which I'm yep. sure you've heard of. And when I looked at your platform briefly, it looked like a 
B to B to C version of Heads Up yep. Health. Yep, very astute. So really where Biocana came from, came from my own personal health journey and my experience in the regulated medical space. Um, so today, if you're going to start as a functional health practitioner um, and implement a health lifestyle change based upon lab testing or objective data, along with qualitative inputs, it's all over the place. In order to really drive uh, an experience and drive the right outcomes, it takes a lot of work and a lot of investment for both the practitioner and their client. Prior to Biocanic, um, there was what they called intake assessment forms or um, things like, uh, they're called assessments like adrenal stress indicators where you're measuring your perceived um, you know, craving of salt, your sleep quality, do you wake up between you know, 2 and 3 a.m. on a scale of 0 to 5 and it's entered into an Excel spreadsheet. The um, lab data, and if anybody has followed the lab, the functional lab space, that I would guess that there's no less than you know, 500 lab providers and 10,000 different functional labs out there. So the practitioner has multiple PDF reports that they're trying to correlate with the qualitative assessments from their client. Then they're also making supplement recommendations through various different entities through the dispensaries or, you know, you know, drop shipping their own products. Um, and then all the while trying to figure out whether the changes that they're recommending are actually having the impact, the desired impact. So I was doing that as you were tracking my result, my key metrics in Excel. I had a Dropbox folder with all of my different lab tests. I had my Excel spreadsheets with my periodic assessments. Um, and all of this was very disparate and it took a lot of work and time to be able to do that. And the real, and really how we look at it is we want to be a tech enabler to really bring scale to functional health and wellness. If you think about how hard it is to implement a health program and how many different things there are from both a practitioner who's lives and trains in the industry and bring that information into a meaningful, usable way to a client who doesn't study it, it's very challenging. And so we're really about trying to solve that problem. I was often surprised by how scripted it was. You've got people who are very expensive, these functional medicine doctors, practitioners. They go on particular courses. It could be for the Dutch test or blood chemistry analysis. Pretty, it's very algorithmic, you know, do this test, uh, if this, then that. These people are being replicated all up and down the country. I can't remember how many functional practitioners are what 60,000 in the US something right. of this order so what you're wanting to do is uh, be able to have all functional medicine practitioners pool in the data from all the labs that they use because they tend to use the same labs like GI like Quicksilver and so on suck that data and have a common interface onto that data and then somehow is there some way of spotting patterns over time or is it just data consolidation interface to all these lab it, providers? It's both, right? So the initial kind of first step is one, from a functional health industry, we have to get the data centralized. There isn't the ability to correlate individual lab metrics across an individual today. And so when you look at something like a Dutch test, there's an interpretation guide for that. When you look at a GI map, there's an interpretation guide for that. And there are experienced practitioners who, in their head, have the ability to interpret what a dysbiosis on a GI map means related to 
a hormone result within the Dutch test. That's learned over experience and time. What we're trying to do is speed that learning process and also become the tool to enable the practitioner to understand and process the data faster. So I, as a naturopathic physician, may not see Dutch tests twi- you know, six times a day, every day for five days a week. I may see a Dutch test a week. And when I see something that's abnormal, I have to spend time and go, wait, what does that mean? What is the context? And how do I think about that? And then I have to do that. That can take up to three hours of preparing for um, an individual client session. And you multiply that over time. And that's why it is so expensive because practitioners aren't able to scale because of the time investment and the learning curve it takes for them to be able to effectively kind of know what to do when they see it. And so really what we're trying to do first is aggregate the data to implement the known rules so that to your point, then there is known decisions based upon what an individual value means. Then the next step is to correlate what the individual labs mean in context of each other. And that's really kind of where we're looking next. And then the the question becomes, okay, now that we've seen what the correlation between multiple labs on an individual is, what works and what doesn't. Um, And that was one of my big challenges coming from the regulated medical space is the data driven aspect, right? You know, everything is done through a placebo control, double line study and everything else. In the functional health space, a lot of it is what I call tribal knowledge. People are learning through experience and communication, but it isn't necessarily well-documented. Right. And if you think about it from the perspective of an unsuccessful health engagement, does that naturopath physician or health coach ever hear back from the person who hasn't seen results? And does that miss or that wrong path ever get assimilated into their thinking as a means to, oh, wait, when I see the person like that, I shouldn't go this pathway because it hasn't been effective. Really, where we're trying to go is bring data structure Um, and objectiveness to all of these different health approaches to really enable scale for, for for the industry as a whole. I think when you gave me a brief tour of the platform and I just had been interviewing Travis, I think that's what shone through to me was this data, this structured approach, which is clearly missing. And that's why I said, hey, come on and let, let's have a chat, an unstructured chat, actually. Again, when it came to functional medicine, I noticed that they were following scripted rules, you know, base, quite basic algorithms, actually. And then I noticed you'd have pe- people who would shine through in a field like Brian Walsh when it came to certain blood chemistry interpretation. And you would wonder, why is this functional medicine practitioner so ahead in this domain? And why hasn't it propagated to all the other functional medicine practitioners? And that made functional medicine often seem more of an art. I'll give you another example. Most functional medicine practitioners will offer food sensitivity testing and intolerance testing. And yet, when you get into these areas of IgG, IgE, etc., it is anything but what I would term a science, but it gets close to it when you've got practitioners who are doing all the time and have got very good at it. Yep. And that's exactly, that's exactly the challenge. I think food sensitivity relative to IgG is a perfect example because of molecular mimicry where molecules of certain foods look similar enough to the body that drives the IgG response. 
you can have a lot of confounding information from an IgG test. And to your point, the art of it is people who have spent their careers looking at IgGs and seen responses from individuals in the wild naturally become more astute in how they find the insights and recommendations. They're able to look at individual values and recognize that um, you know, the, the IgG response to, say, grapefruit is, could also be confounded by another similar molecule, um, which may be the part of the issue if the individual isn't necessarily eating grapefruit. Um, where that becomes problematic, again, from the industry perspective is that is an art. It isn't necessarily documented in objective data. And really, you know, you take somebody like a Brian Walsh, who's an expert in blood chemistry, how do you take his brain, his ability to process, synthesize the data and really understand what the best path, possible path is and actually pass that on to other practitioners so that the industry can actually scale to reach more people? That's really exciting. Yeah. So you've got these three areas, which you mentioned. One, let's centralize the data. So your incoming lab results from different providers like SpectraCell, et cetera. I assume you have SpectraCell. Uh, then you're applying, uh, you're giving a meaning across lab results. So instead of one lab giving you their reference values or functional values, and you're looking at them in isolation and having the human act as an, an artist, stroke scientist, give an interpretation over it, you're trying to have machine help give meaning over multiple lab provider results. How, how do you do that? And how well developed is that? Is that something uh, we're just we're, beginning? We're, we're, yeah, we're very much in the early phases. So really from a, from a data, develop, data model development standpoint, one, we're in the process of centralizing data first and foremost. Two, the known expert rules, which is just simple decision tree type of stuff, adds a lot of value because you aren't necessarily having to jump out of the system to go find that, you know, the interpretation guide to tell you what to do when you see a given value. We help bring that front and center. But ultimately, what, we, what we're going to get to is the ability to connect the dots between the two and then make insights and recommendations for the practitioner. Are there competitors then? Uh, because again, I think of blood calculator. Have yeah, you heard of that? Absolutely, and it's it's gr and blood calculator is great. There's also quite a few um, new applications of microbiome and looking at microbiome and making recommendations. Where we view it is, we can't look at a single omic value. If you look at the gut, you only know about the gut. Now, people would argue we can make inferences based upon other information out there. But at an individual basis, it's nearly impossible to predict from a single value what the holistic view of the, of the person is. So the, it's great that the industry is moving forward, you know, specifically around things like blood calculator or even some of the biomes of the world. However, it doesn't take into account the full view of the individual's metabolism. And so that's really what we're focused on is being agnostic to the testing model uh, meaning we don't, we're looking for the values from the lab, not concerned about the specifics of an individual lab. Um, because if you have, let's say a cortisol pattern in isolation, you don't necessarily know how that's one driving the output of other metabolites, or you do have no idea of what's going on from say the gut perspective, right? Can the client 
also have access to their own data? Is this some kind of dashboard yes. that they can share in? Yeah, so the way that we build data. a platform is the dashboard view for the client is nearly identical to the dashboard view for the practitioner. You mentioned supplements earlier, I think. I think you mentioned supplement protocols. It wasn't just you had incoming lab results um, being consolidated on your platform and hopefully normalized, etc. But you mentioned you had links yeah. to dispensary. Can you explain? So, one, you know, obviously about? anybody who's in the functional health space knows the importance of supplements, but also recognizes that supplementation doesn't have a lot of objective data behind it. So looking at um, both supplement quality, but also thinking about dosage, a lot of it is, look, try to titrate up to say three to six pills, you know, three times a day. Well, is it three or is it six that drive the output? So one of the things that we wanted to do was really bring, again, this idea of objective data measurement and output by tracking supplementation. Um, through my own personal health journey, being estrogen dominant, one of the common supplements that you would take is, is DIM. Um, and DIM helps kind of remove some of the estrogen metabolites to kind of bring down the estrogen dominance. I was taking uh, two twice a day for a year and a half, and I wasn't seeing any change in my estrogen metabolites. The practitioner, uh, the medical director then said, well, why don't you go to four twice a day? We had never done four twice a day. So really what we're trying to do on the supplementation side is bring more of the science to it rather than the art. One of the big challenges from a supplementation standpoint, thinking about my father's experiences being on a fixed income, you know, a $70 bottle of digestive enzymes is very challenging within a fixed income. So getting to the right dosage, not only benefits the client from a perspective of I can minim I can get the bare minimum of supplementation that I need to support the best outcome, but I can also look at it as a, as a cost savings. How can I avoid wasting money on supplements that you know I'm taking too much of, or even taking supplements that aren't effective at driving the right outcomes? Did you say you were adding DIM as a supplement? Yes, we actually increased dosage based upon the medical the interpreting medical director's recommendation, but it was something that had never been considered before. So again, going to this idea of how to speed the path to resolution would be instead of waiting that year and a half of doing an under titrated dose of DIM, start from the get-go with the appropriate dose. DIM is found in like cauliflower and broccoli and it acts like estrogen in the body. And I thought you had estrogen dominance. So would that not? Get- no, it, reduce, it reduces estrogen. So in terms of dispensaries, a lot of these functional medicine practitioners have their own dispensary. I mean, their own brand of supplements. Yep. So we don't, we, we're not in the dispensary business. Again, we're tracking the data. So how we've built the platform is we allow the practitioner to decide where they want to have their client get their supplements from. And we do that through the, our, our supplement template builder. Um, so they can just add their existing dispensary if they have a personal branded one or if they're using a you know a third party like a full script or a Wellivate, they just plug in the um, links for the individual supplements. And then for the client experience, oftentimes supple- particular supplements aren't available. You know, all the supplements aren't available in a single dispensary. And they're having to bounce through different places where they're ordering, even from Amazon. And what it does, 
by our platform leveraging integrations with those other dispensaries, we're able to let the practitioner leverage all of the different approaches, but it's a single experience for the client. You mentioned supplement protocols, but what about eating protocols and maybe even fasting protocols? Um, so we haven't done that today. So the the way it would be done through the functional health engagement is the practitioner would make a given recommendation based upon diet. Um, there's obviously a lot of great tools out there in terms of food logging. I know quite a few of the clients in the system are using things like MyFitnessPal to track food and macros. Um, we don't do that today. We would certainly look to integrate. Um, part of our platform strategy is not necessarily trying to be all things to everybody um, because there are so many good platforms that do things exceptionally well today we would look to just integrate with those platforms yeah it'd be nice if the practitioner could see that the client was following an eating and or fasting protocol so we so we do do that through our health trackers so we allow um our health trackers are very flexible we can do anything from please explain the health yeah trackers. yeah so from the health trackers perspective what we're trying to do is create accountability between sessions and we do that through tracking individual health metrics so for example, if they're working with a client and they're worried about, in my case, um, you know, hyperinsulinemia, they want to do daily blood glucose tracking. They have the ability to have a health tracker for blood glucose. But if they're doing things like, look, this week I want you to avoid gluten or I want you to avoid caffeine for the next two weeks, we have a health, the health tracker can say, look, did you avoid caffeine today or how many coffees did you have today um, and tracking that over time. Is that manual or is any of the actual API stuff from devices in the health track? Yeah, so we're manual today. Most of our clients are kind of all over the map when it terms in terms of which products they're using to track. Um, so things like, you know, some people eat for ketones, some people use a Precision Extra versus a Keto Mojo. Um, we can do the integrations. We're built on a, a flexible integration structure. So we would do that. We just haven't had the demand yet for, for the direct integration. You mentioned Precision Analytical. I, I guess that's a lab provider. What is it they do? Uh, so they they make the they're the pro, uh, lab provider for the Dutch test, and the Dutch test is probably the most popular um, hormone cortisol test that's in the you, you probably in the world today. Um, there's always quite a few different types of hormone testing, but the Dutch test, based upon the number of metrics that it gives. Um, and the robustness of the data has been their kind of uh, primary bread and butter test out there. We see a ton of those tests coming through. The Cyrix test, I would love to do. Do you want to explain what that is? Uh, the which test? The Cyrix. Oh yeah, the Cyrix. Yeah. So, um, so there's um, they have a food sensitivity panel. They have a range of different panels. So I did the um, Array Ten, which is I think eight pages of different IgG food sensitivities. Um, which, um, you know, is really insightful because it helps give you directional approaches to understanding what works for you. I think the challenge with things like the keto diet today is if you were to go research online and you read about the keto diet, it becomes very heavy dairy um, and a lot of beef protein, right? Um, which was good for me in the fact that I was able to cut out carbs, but it was bad for me because I'm reactive to beef and uh, cow's milk. And so I'm not reactive to cheese because it's fermented, but cow's milk in its form. So heavy whipping cream and coffee, adding sour cream to salads just dis does not work for me. And it was actually inflammatory. And so really those food sensitivity tests become the next 
level of insight. So if you say, look, we need to make a diet and lifestyle change, but if we make that change in a what I would consider a dogmatic approach without understanding the individual's ability to digest and process those foods effectively without an inflammatory response, you end up not seeing any benefit. And that is one of the, uh, that's one of the key reasons why it's important to have, you know, tests that really give a clear snapshot of the individual. Have you, do you also support the ALCAT on your system, which is like Cyrex? In fact, I know somebody ordered ALCAT and Cyrex and ended up with conflicting results, but. So the way that we work today is we support probably on the order of uh, 30 different labs. If we haven't seen a lab before, the practitioner will just select lab not listed. That alerts us that there's a new lab type that we don't support. Then we write the code to process the data, process the data for that practitioner. And then that code is now available to all other practitioners and clients. In oh, the nice. So, you know, like I said earlier, there's no less than 500 functional lab providers with, you know, 10,000 different tests. We didn't want to go out and write 10,000 different interpreters if nobody's using the test. So what we let our practitioners is grow our list based upon what they're using today. Is there any interesting labs that you are aware of, any new labs lately? Just because you had so many in the, the drop-down list you showed me, I'm sure there must be uh, one or two that's particularly uh, novel, interesting, or useful. And also tied to that, do you see a large future metabolite testing? You you mentioned a multiomic future. You you seem very focused on metabolism, and I can understand why. Um, so there, you know, a lot of you know, I just read an article on Business Insider about a two point six billion dollar VC investment in microbiome testing. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff coming through on the microbiome side, but there is you know, obviously, if you think about your own genetics and compare it to the genetics of your gut, it's, you know, it's chalk and cheese difference, right? There's way more things to be learned from the gut microbiome. Um, and we still have a long way to go. I think, you know, from a simplicity standpoint on the GI side, we still look at the GI map or um, some other stool sample tests as being more clear and actionable than some of the newer technologies um, that are coming out today. Uh, and that's largely because the the basis of what to do about the information exists. I think a lot of the new testing techniques um, in terms of gut microbiome testing are interesting, but the it, the they haven't been prevalent enough to really understand what behavior change and and close the loop on how to actually action and make changes based upon that. I think from a from a usefulness perspective, the the Dutch test or the hormone test is really insightful, um, but it also is contextual, right? So it gives you a lot of information, but doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what to do. I think from a food sensitivity standpoint, the uh, Oxford Biomedical Mediator Release test is the most interesting because they're testing the blood they basically take the five blood samples and they're injecting the actual proteins and measuring the inflammatory response. So it gives you more of a direct assessment of food sensitivities than say an IgG where you can be confounded by molecular mimicry. The other ones that I think people look past that I think are critical, especially in this day and age are the environmental and heavy metal toxicity tests. Um, I think, you know, we, you know, we look at things like, um, you know, hormone dysregulation, but if you're living in a toxic environment with all these endocrine disruptors, 
uh, you know, things like uh, BPA bottles, unclean water, um, mold toxicity, home toxicity. You know, Ben Lynch talks quite a bit about home toxicity and not understanding whether your environment is actually driving your dysregulation is a big blind spot that I don't think a lot of people consider today. Also thyroid problems for the same reason. I, I mean, exactly. My wife's uh, Hashimoto's came from black mold within the house. Um, and, you know, it would be, you know, we were looking at changing um, thyroid markers, T4, T3, TPO antibodies, and we didn't really understand why, despite making the food and diets changes, and it happened to be environmental, right? Is there any question I've not asked you that you wish I had, uh, I had asked? No, I mean, I think, I think the, the really exciting part about the functional health and wellness space really is that the health costs are out of control globally. And that's largely driven through, in, you know, our environmental mismatch that's happening, our, you know, processed foods and sugars, and there's no doubt about that. I think the exciting aspect of functional health and wellness, but the question around this industry is, do consumers care enough in mass to really take ownership over their health? Or are people in mass just unwilling to do the investment and work that it takes to be healthy and stay healthy for longer? So I do actually wonder how you plan to structure the data. Like, how do you tag it? How do you put an order to it? Quite a few different approaches from a, from a machine learning perspective, right? There's the kind of structured uh, or supervised and unsupervised approach. We're just in the process of, look, get as much data on everything from everybody in as soon as possible. We're going to do some modeling relative to what the data sets have to, what size do they have to be for us to glean insights. Um, but really the expectation is, is that there are going to be some pretty key signals that come out for the, let's say for the Dutch test, there's 75 different biometric values. Not all 75 matter. What, actually really matters to an individual based upon their individual state or metabolic health that they're really wanting to get a hang on. That fundamental issue is going to come out in the data. The question is, how much data is it going to take? That's the real question around the industry. Does a lab keep a copy of everybody? So if a lab has 10,000 practitioners, do, does a lab end up storing forever the results of all patients across all practitioners? So in general, they do, right? Because they're updating their reference ranges as the distribution of the populations increase. The problem That's is- That's a hell of a data set that they don't seem to be mining as far as I know. Yeah. The, in the, the, the frustrating part for, uh, from our perspective, again, you know, we think about it from an integration standpoint. So Quest and LabCorp, you can certainly integrate with and get the data- in a way that makes sense. The, all of these other functional lab companies have really great tests and have zero technical infrastructure. So we've been working with a few of the lab testing companies that we, we talk with and they just, their business does not allow them to invest in unlocking the data because they're looking And maybe at, even their legal contracts, et cetera, stop them. Right. Right. And so that's really important. Well, it depends. I mean, through through HIPAA law, they can do de-identified aggregated analysis unless they were entered into agreement where they're explicitly not allowed to. 
Uh, but the reality is they need to keep lights on. They need to keep labs coming through. It's not a big margin business. And so investing in infrastructure and analysis doesn't necessarily create value for them right now. And so they can't afford to invest in the ability for doing that. And so really why we're trying to solve that by being agnostic to the lab companies um, is to be able to solve that problem, to create the population level analysis, to really understand what are the key signals in the individual labs. As Biocanic, are you able to store the data yourself across many practitioners? Yeah. And therefore many labs and many, therefore many patients across many practitioners. Yeah. So we're, we're very clear in our uh, privacy policy in terms of service that we absolutely, you know, use 256 bit encryption, both in transit and in rest. We take data privacy and security very seriously, but our platform is really going to drive a lot of value for people through population level analytics. And that's done through de-identified data sets. And so we've structured the business in a way that really focuses on on that. So we are... Yeah, so longer term, you can start giving insights based upon that population level data back to the practitioners. Exactly. And the idea is creating creating phenotypes. So for me, hey, Jeremy walks in the door, he's looking for sleep, brain fog issues, and body composition issues. Um, and he's got cryptosporidium, H. pylori, estrogen dominance, and food sensitivities. Taking that and what worked for me, being able to take that type of insight, so the next 42-year-old male with the same complaints, to a different practitioner said, hey, look, rather than starting on a gut protocol to worry about yeast overgrowth or SIBO overgrowth, you really should focus on carbohydrate restriction. And it's not necessarily saying this, this is what it will be. It would be, hey, practitioner, we've seen for similar clients like your new client that 70% respond positively by approaching with a low-carb diet. Um, and so we really become in what, you know, in AI gets thrown a lot, but it's really an augmented intelligence platform so that they can make decisions quickly and efficiently um, based upon other information and what's worked. And the, the idea, if you think about it, is if you go to, and I'm sure you've been to them, if you look at like the LiveWello community for um, people uploading their genetic data, or you look at some of the um, support groups or like Healing Rosie on Facebook, People have this information and they just have no idea what to do with it. And if they knew that said, hey, look, if I shared my information and I was able to really understand what worked for somebody else like me, so I'm not constantly caught in this er this space of trial and error, I absolutely would want to do that. I would share my data because I'm going to get benefit along with helping somebody else find a better health outcome quicker as well, too. Your long-term goal, I'll, you didn't say it was long-term, but it's clearly long-term. That's a highly valuable long-term goal. Yep. One thing we never discussed was the underlying root cause of the majority of disease, chronic disease certainly, is the environment in which we live. Yep. And, that, and, that, and so when you, when you say, hey, what's the root cause? Well, the root cause is we're not keeping circadian rhythm. Uh, we do have junk light. Hey, we do have endocrine disruptors. Uh, we can't uh, expel the volume of heavy metals, toxins, molds, etc. The list goes on and on. And so the cure to everything, I, this is one thing I found funny about functional medicine, because the cure is always the same. Have a more natural lifestyle, a more ancestral lifestyle. It's, it's always the same cure for everybody. Yeah, I mean, the, it, this may sound a little weird, but the challenge, you know, we look into your point, 
we look at things like the paleo diet, ancestral evolution, and everything else as what we should be doing based upon what worked for our ancestors. We are in the middle of evolution, right? And our environment is accelerating faster than our genes can adapt through progressive generations. So the only way for somebody to stay healthy ahead of our environmental mismatch and the speed at which our environment is changing is to understand their genetic and metabolic potential and what is going to find the way to select them out of the environment, right? And to do that, it may not necessarily be for you the same thing that it is for me. And without really having that understanding to really understand what is what is the environmental toxin that's driving my inflammatory trigger, that's driving my systemic, you know, low-grade inflammation that's ultimately going to lead to diabetes and a heart attack is going to be different between two people, even though we may have the same type 2 diabetes diagnosis. And that's why it's so critical to be able to get the objective lab data to really drive how can I stay ahead of my environment so that I don't get selected out of our, uh, out of human civilization. I appreciate the answer. Where do you see us in 10 years? Do you ever think about that, the 10-year plan? Because that's where I, I spend quite a lot of my time. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, uh, you know, I, I'm obviously very U.S. focused, both in my you know, previous career experience and just happen to live in it. The, the kind of thought experiment that I always go through in my mind, I probably sit through, sit, sit down and write it out is when Medicare fails, because it will, because nobody's getting healthy fast enough, what happens? Where, you know, it's too big to fail, so there will be a government bailout. Where do the costs come out of the system? Is it through pharmaceutical reimbursement cuts? Is it uncovered benefits? And then does that become the tipping point where payer policy reimbursement regulations actually fall behind and people as a consumer take control of their health or do they not? That is a kind of a thought experiment question that I don't think anybody knows the answer to is what is that critical point in the crossover point where the industry changes from a complete disruption perspective? Um, that's that I think is the big question on how, how this actually unfolds. You want people to stay healthy and then drop dead quickly. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean the, the reality of the kind of, you know, if you think about crossing the chasm in terms of functional medicine, getting to the early and late majority, those people, those, those people, not those people is a terrible term, but the people that are kind of in this space in many ways may, are making intentional decisions that are against their health, but they do it because of despair or financial reasons or time reasons or stress reasons. Um, and that is a larger societal challenge that will be a limiter on people saying, yes, I want to be healthy. Yes, I have the ability and understanding to be able to make changes that matter that are going to drive a different outcome than what I've been doing yesterday. It's like the opiate crisis is largely driven by economic uh, disparity. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, one of the things in, you know, my medic in my, um, uh, respiratory days is, you know, a lot of people are thinking about COPD patients because of the cost and the issues. And I always give the example of the, you can't understand a COPD patient who's on a fixed income living in public housing until you go sit outside of a VA in a smoking tent. And a person will literally go into a hospital, get admitted for, you know, 
emphysema, pneumonia, or whatever, get discharged and go buy cigarettes. That is a mindset and a challenge issue that all the best functional medicine docs in the world aren't going to be able to solve. And that is where a lot of the real cost challenges are going to come from. And how does that ever change? That's a much, I, I laugh, that's a much broader discussion we would go into there. And I'm, it's, it's quite a tempting one. But respecting the, the time we agreed, uh, I would like to thank you, Jeremy. It was much appreciated to jump on and talk. I'd live with me and I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Lee. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for your time. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing. <laughs>